You're listening to the Podcast Detroit Network. Visit www.podcastdetroit.com for more information. Hey everybody, it's Wednesday evening, time for American Winer on podcastdetroit.com. How's everybody doing? My name is Alex. Lovely to be here. My guest tonight, uh, we were just catching up. We haven't talked in, uh, in almost two and a half years now. Uh, Mr. Jim Krause. Jim, how you doing, man? I'm doing real good, Alex. Good to see you. Good to see you. Um, uh, a little bit of background. Uh, I worked for you uh, at a couple different places when I was doing my controls thing. I first started, uh, I met you in 2014, May 2014. A friend of mine uh, hooked us up. That and was that long ago? It was that long ago. Oh. Yeah, and uh, we were. I worked at uh, it was AutoCon, AutoCon, right. and uh, we worked there uh, until AutoCon uh, disappeared uh, in uh, in April of 2015. And then we were at R and E for a little bit, and uh, and then uh, it was Luca when I got hired, and then when I left, it was Legacy. So right. a couple different places, but uh, we're going to talk to you about because uh, you, you you work in the controls industry, um, and uh, and you also you're a drummer though. So we're gonna we're gonna be talking about uh, both of those things. The controls things a backup. I'm still waiting to be a rock star. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, same same here. <laughs> um, but uh, so I start off the interview with the same question every time, and that question is, where were you born? I was born in Detroit. Detroit, Michigan. Nineteen sixty four. Nineteen sixty four. Do you remember the hospital, like the location, or? I think it was Cottage Hospital. No. Cottage. I should mention your your wife Paula is yeah, here. She's in the background. He just looked over, so she's going to be back up for uh, for answers. <laughs> yeah, I was pretty young then, so I don't remember, but I know it was in Detroit. That's okay. What the birth certificate says Detroit. So. Uh, all right. Um, and then where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Detroit? No, I grew up in Harrison Township. Harrison Township. I, the first three years of my life was East Detroit, back when it was called East Detroit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really grew up in Harrison Township. Okay. So, and then, uh, like, what were you into? Like, tell me about your childhood. Like, what did you do? What were you interested in? I loved fishing, mm-hmm. and it was a it was a great place to grow up. Actually, my parents lived on the water. Uh, they were both teachers. I'm not sure how they afforded four kids on the water, but we lived on a canal, and that was back in the day when there was not many houses in the area. And I, you know, literally could as long as I was home by dark, mm-hmm. it didn't matter where I was or what I was doing. As long as I was home by dark, that's all anybody mattered. So I would be fishing and wandering through the swamp, and I got a boat when I was like eight years old. So Really? Yeah, it was it was awesome. What I, kind of a boat was it? It was a rowboat. I couldn't get a motor on it until I was 12, so I rowed a lot until I was 12. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, was, it was a great place to grow up. And you would just explore like the, the, the waters of Harrison Township mm-hmm. with your rowboat? Yeah, it was, your... it was right by Metro Beach. Oh, okay. And that okay. marsh to the north of Metro beach was sort of my playground as a kid Uh, all all summer all winter it was it was pretty awesome all right i'm gonna adjust your mic just a little bit here so it's facing you there we go uh but uh so so you very you were into you were into water things then you because you grew up on the water um and you said your parents were teachers Mm -hmm. what kind of teachers were they uh my mom was a german teacher of all strange things and my dad was uh, – he was the auto shop teacher and machine shop teacher at East Detroit High School. And then he stopped being the auto shop teacher and was just a machine shop teacher. Okay. And, uh, I mean, did you go to either of those high schools then? Or I was, did not. You did not. My mom, ironically, did sub at Lance Cruz where I went oh, no on kidding. occasion. And I had her as a substitute teacher in a German class. So that was interesting. One of my a good friend of mine who I've had on the podcast is a teacher at Lance Cruz. He's oh, really? a, an English teacher there. Yeah. Yeah. So funny small world. Yeah, it is. Um 
But uh, what kind of a student were you? As a youngster, I was a great student. I was probably a nerd, I guess, when I was a kid. I was a geek. I was in science fairs and won awards from NASA and all kinds of neat stuff. No kidding. And then came high school. I went to a parochial um, grade school and middle school, St. Luke's. And I got to Lance Cruz and I was, you know, a little nervous and wide eyed. And the friendliest crowd was probably the wrong crowd. Mm -hmm. So the very first year of high school, I did really good. After that, I didn't do so good. I mean, I I still got, you know, B's in math and science, but some of the other grades suffered a little. Mm -hmm. And then I discovered, you know, bands and girls and different chemicals. Yeah. (laughs) I was going to ask what uh, what you said friendliest crowd like what did you mean by friendliest well, back 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 in the 80s <laughs> um it was i mean there was you know jocks and burnouts right oh, yeah. too. jocks were you know not friendly people burnouts were cool people mm-hmm. so i started hanging out with the burnouts uh, okay and then and, and then and sort of became one mm-hmm. well uh so you said you you won an award from NASA or won awards from NASA and were and were as a youngster you were yeah I, I was into I was like I said I was pretty geeky I liked you know reading Hawaiian wonder books and mm-hmm. watch documentaries on TV mm-hmm. um, I did science projects on uh, hovercrafts one year which got me second place award at the Detroit Science Fair and then the following year I did alternate energy sources which was you know back in the 70s that was a new and exciting thing yeah um and i won first place that year and then the next year i did one on aerodynamics where i actually built a wind tunnel and tried different wing airfoils and stuff because i've always been a big fan of aircraft yeah and i I believe that's the one that i won the nasa award for and that's and you built a freaking wind tunnel how old were you you did that i I think i was 12 12 how did you build a wind tunnel in your garage Uh, yeah we used a car blower Oh, okay. <laughs> My dad was a, a motorhead. Oh, okay. Know? Up until his last day, he was a motorhead. So, so th- this was like a little like model, like uh, yeah, for... it was probably three foot long, twelve inches in diameter. Okay. I was picturing like this car sized, you no, know, contraption. I was like, damn, that. Is... I mean, that's still impressive, but you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that was kind of a fun project because, like I said, I've always been very interested in aircraft. So mm-hmm. I had uh, built some models that I tried different airfoils on, and like. Flew them and timed them to see which airfoils were best. So you've always had a technical brain, like you said. Even when you when your grades started to go down, the math and science still stayed up. Yeah, that's that's sort of always been my thing. Mm-hmm. I always I'm always interested in how stuff works. That's like you know still my thing. And and you said your dad was was a motorhead. So is that oh, where you yeah. got that from? I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. In fact, it was you know the first car I got was if you can make it run, it's yours. Ah, uh, and what was so it? It was a Pinto. Oh, <laughs> no kidding, really. Yeah. And you made a run. I made a run. How long With did it his take? Help, uh, a couple weeks, really. Nice, nice. Yeah. And how long did that thing last you then? Well, pretty much all the way through high school. Oh, and really? it, was, it was a beauty. It was like four different colors. and But it ran. Nice. And, and I built my own speaker boxes in the back, so it had a decent stereo. And that's all you needed back then. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, So you, you, you must have known like from – I mean, a pretty early age than that, like you were going to go into engineering or something like that. Right? I did. I was, I wanted, you know, as a young kid, I wanted to be like a, a research scientist and, you know, school and I didn't really get along that well. Later on, I had to settle for something else, but yeah, I was always going to do something technical. Mm-hmm. Um, I bought from my paper route money when I was 11 or 12 years old, I bought a Hawaiian or a, a 101 electronics experiments kit. Mm-hmm. off a garage sale that was on my paper out. And I took that home and made the, you know, the 
crystal radio and you know did all the experiments on this and kind of really took to the electronic stuff i thought it was really interesting this is the first thing that sort of yeah you took to like so, so. And, my, and my you know my dad noticed that so he bought me some books and um as soon as i got to high school there was an electronics class i of course signed up for that mm-hmm. um then they had uh lance cruz has they call it the pankow center but we call it the career center and it was a vocational center for Lance Cruz. Mm-hmm. I think I was the first or second batch of kids to go there. Um, but I tried to get into building trades, and that was closed. So I took electronics. Uh-huh. And that pretty much stuck with me after that. Well, let's also talk, as you said, uh, in high school was when you uh, started getting into music. Mm-hmm. And was that when you started drumming? I started drumming, actually, at 12 years old. Uh, I was uh, at a party with my mom and dad. It was at my Aunt Gloria's house. Um, but I'm a 12-year-old kid stuck at a party full of adults. Um, my Aunt Gloria at the time had a husband, Ray Sasco, who was a old jazz drummer, big band guy, had played with the circus and stuff. Huh. And I, he was a great guy, actually. I love that guy. He must have seen the boredom in my eyes, and he kind of whispered to me, come on downstairs, I'm going to show you something. And he sat me down in front of a drum set and taught me how to play the simple swing pattern, you know, with two and four and a hi-hat. Mm-hmm. And I did that all that night. And then every time I came back to Gloria's house for anything, I'd go downstairs and he would teach me something else. Nice. So, so how long did that last then, that that that, that uh, sort of pattern of you learning drums? Probably a year, year and a half. And so how long until you, you went to your parents and said, listen? You know, <laughs> I didn't even have to. They, uh, they, they supported the music thing. Amazingly, you know, having a 12-year-old drummer at home has got to be hell. But they uh, they actually bought me a drum set for Christmas surprise one year. Oh, really? Yeah. In fact, they bought my brother a, a trumpet that same year, a silver trumpet. Mm-hmm. And that Christmas morning, you know, 6 o'clock in the morning, there's a trumpet and a drum going in the living room. Mm-hmm. And they just kind of peeked their head out the door and said, can you wait? Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so That's that was, an odd combination to a trumpet and drums. It's yeah. like <laughs> – yeah, we did, uh, you know, some Tijuana brass kind of stuff. Uh, uh, does he still play then? He does, actually. He's uh, He plays bass now. He plays with the trumpet, but he plays bass guitar mostly. Well, the last time I saw you, I believe that was, mm-hmm. that was, that was I met him. So, yes. yeah, he, was, he played with us. He played bass with us. And he sang Tom Sawyer that yes, night, too. So. exactly. <laughs> um, but uh, so, I mean, you, the, a jazz drummer was the one who, who kind of introduced you to it. But had you had any interest in, like, I mean – Becoming a musician before then? I wanted to, you know, we were a small school and I wanted to be in the band. And I actually wanted to play drums, but the band director at the time, I think this would have been fifth grade probably, sixth grade, whenever you start band, he told me, no, you can't play drums. I don't know why he told me, no, you can't play drums, but he did. So I tried trombone for a year and that just didn't do it for me. So I kind of gave up Mm -hmm. until, you know, until Ray got me started. Until the universe reached out and was like, no, yeah, no, no you can time. play drums. It's, it's time to play. And, and there was some, there was some uh, uh, fun in that because I want to say in eighth grade, I went to the music festival. You know, they have the music festivals. And I did a drum solo and I got a, a blue ribbon or a one or whatever it was. And the guy that told me I couldn't play drums was there. Oh, nice. And I just uh, kind of smiled and showed it to him. Yeah. Like, very good. Yes, I can. <laughs> well, so when you'd been playing drums for a while then when you started getting into to, you know, the – Yeah, when I got into know. high school, actually, uh, and again, it was, it was a terrifying experience because I'm – Coming from a class of, you know, 15 kids that we've all known each other for the last five or six years to high school with thousands of kids. I don't know any of them. Um, so I, I showed up to band 
and they did the chair thing. And I apparently had been practicing more than everybody else because I all of a sudden became first chair. Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, well, this is cool. That was easy. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it was. And I actually, I I still remember the part from the song, you know, what it was. And it was just a snare drum routine. Mm -hmm. So I did that. And then um, after the marching band season was over, then I tried out for jazz band and I made that. And um, I had a couple of the friends that I was with with in band band, they said, hey, we should get a band together. It was a guitar player and a bass player and myself. And we actually did something at a talent show. Mm-hmm. And then at the talent show, somebody else heard me from a band of like older guys. They were all a couple years older than me. And they said, hey, would you like to come play with us? Mm-hmm. So, of course, like any, you know, 15-year-old would do, I abandoned my friends and go <laughs> play with these guys. Mm-hmm. How, how much older were they? They yeah. were, I think they were like seniors in high school. Oh, okay. So. so, and it was a very educational experience for me. It's where I learned how to fling bottle caps and yeah. do all kinds of fun <laughs> stuff. But, I mean, they were, they were, you know, good musicians. Well, what was that band called then? I'm trying to remember. I remember the names of the guys in it, but I don't remember the name of the band. It's actually uh, the the ironically the party we played at a party um, where I started dating my wife now. Oh no, kidding! Then. And it's also was in the house across the street from where my daughter Marissa lives. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Small world. That is a small world. What is that? Uh, you know, Eastern Michigan is a you know? yeah. <laughs> small world. Um, southeastern Michigan. Uh, but, um, so, I mean, what, tell me about it then. Like, what did you guys, when you got into this band with these seniors, I mean, how long are you guys together and where did you play and, you know, what did you do? We played a lot of parties around, you know, the, the area. Mm-hmm. Um, we did do the talent shows. Um, we played, I, I suppose the big night for the band was we warmed up for Toby Red, if you remember Toby Red. Which, I can't say I yeah, do. That was a big <laughs> band back in the eighties. Um, we played at some New Year's Eve party in Detroit. Uh, some hall, but I know Toby Red was there. And I think a big part of that might have been because their lead singer's younger brother was our lead singer at the time. Oh, okay. Super talented guy. He could never stay sober for an entire night, but he was, you know, a really good singer. That's, that's, that's impressive to be able to, 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 you know, drink and still sing yeah. as a singer. I learned very quickly early on, like it's, and actually the, the smoking ban, when that happened, I was like, well, you know, I could keep my show for my, my voice for an entire show. As opposed to this, but the first thing was, well, I can't drink the way I thought, you know, I mean, not that I was a huge drinker or anything, but, uh, you know, I'd like to loosen up before I go on stage, but I was quickly like, well, that's not a, if I want to be able to get through the whole show, it's not a good idea. And then the other thing was when the smoking ban lifted or went into effect, I was like, the difference was quite, it was noticeable, like within like the first show that I did, it was like, oh my God, I'm still, it's the end of the show and I can still talk. It's crazy. (laughs) Amazing. Yeah. Um, but, uh, so that's. That was your your upbringing then was was how things work and then eventually drums came mm-hmm. into it and so after as you graduated Lance Cruz what was on your mind like what were you thinking like what, what? well I, I tried to go to college I, I went to Lawrence Tech for a year and it was just too expensive mm-hmm. I mean, it was you know I mean my parents would have probably done it but there was you know three other kids one of them was going to go to med school and and it, it was just a financial burden. You know, not that they wouldn't have, but I just decided, yeah, this isn't for me. So I, uh, I I dropped out of college and got a job working for a scale company doing electronics stuff. So right off the bat then. But that is – and that would have been in what, the 80s then? Yeah, that would have so, been 1982, right? 
1982. So you, you, back then, you know, there's people nowadays, you know, that don't that aren't smart enough to make that decision. You know, they just they just go through the motions, do all four years, and then end up in debt. Whereas you back then were like, this isn't for me. I'm just gonna. I you you are you were already good at something, right? So you were like, I yeah, might as well I, just go for it. I, I either was good at it or not smart enough to know I wasn't going to be. So, <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's one thing I, you know, that I've uh, found is if you really, I mean, you can do anything if you put your mind to it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's there. You just have to want it bad enough. Right. That's the thing. Um, so the scale company though, tell me about it. Like, how did you, how did you uh, it was come a, across that it was job? was an ad in the Macomb Daily. And I, you know, went there and interviewed and the guy apparently thought I was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I had had the high school electronics background and there was some electronics involved. Mostly it was a mechanical job. Um, I, it was interesting. I got to see a lot of different places and a lot of different industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a very good workout because most of my job was calibrating and testing scales. So I was lifting weights all day, every day, mm-hmm. eight or 10 hours a day. So I was I was pretty good shape when I was a youngster. Yeah, that's a very um, that's you would never guess that that'd be a side effect from a job like that, but yeah. it makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting because like I said, we would do you know grain elevators and food packaging and automotive plants and plastic factories and uh, chemical facilities and I mean it was it was some amazing places, mm-hmm. some scary places, but some amazing places. And so, how long were you there then? I was there for probably about a year. Um, and then I, I left there to work, uh, in a machine shop as I, I worked at uh, Uniboring, which I believe is still in business. And I started out there as a burr hand, which is the very bottom of the ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, you're basically deburring parts with a, a dynafile and anyone who's listening that's done that knows what that is. <laughs> um, and then they, I've finally, they, you know, like give me some time to work on a bridge port. So I got on a bridge port and worked on that. Um, after that, I actually got to work on a boring mill for a little while. Mm-hmm. And then at the time, CNCs were still, they weren't really new, but they were newer. And I had the opportunity to work on a CNC, which was really cool at first until I realized that there was, you know, 26,000 of the same cylinder head that needed to be made on that CNC. Mm-hmm. I, I asked them if I could do something else and they said no. So I quit. <laughs> And that was so. That was the end of that. And how long were you at that place? That then was, that was probably about a year or so. Yeah. Too. So it was that was mm-hmm. that was a pretty quick uh, succession of, uh, of yeah. things then to do. And then I went to another scale company after that. Mm-hmm. And did that that work for a while, um, and then uh, the opportunity at AutoCon came up, and I, I went there to be an electrician, but I wound up being a machinist for several years there because I could be a machinist. Mm-hmm. So I, I ran the surface grinder and the Bridgeport and the lathe. Um, ultimately, like the lathe the most, and then uh, when the, it was a it was a smaller company at that time, and when you know work ran out in one department, you could go work in another department. So that's when I kind of got into doing electrical work and pipe fitting. Mm-hmm. Um, so and then I finally just kept doing electrical work and pipe fitting. And then that kid, that turned it is what turned into controls. Yeah, then right, I, I actually got into controls kind of by fibbing a little bit. Um, the plant manager at the time, this was, you know, again, this was back in the eighties and computers were new and exciting, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, my boss, Dennis, you probably knew Dennis. I remember Dennis. He, yeah. he asked me, you know anything about computers? I'm like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> I had no clue, but it was the first, uh, first time we had the computer based PLC five programming. So ladder logic. Then yes, it, was- it was ladder logic. It was, uh, oh, I 
can't remember. It was a DOS-based PLC5 programming software. So I took the computer home and actually got with my ex-brother-in-law, who was actually a computer guy, and said, okay, how does this work? Um, I've managed to fudge my way through it. I went up to Grand Blank and got a machine started and came back, and they said, wow, we can't believe you did that. (laughs) Okay, well, I did. So, And that was sort of the start of it. It must have helped that, like, when you saw the ladder logic for the first thing, you're like, oh, this is basically an electrical relay. It's just on off. Yeah, you know? I mean, it does make it makes sense, you mm-hmm. know, where it did to me anyway. I was like, okay, I get this. I understand how this works. What was the machine in Grand Blank? It was a dial index machine. Uh, it was a, I'm pretty sure it was a drill, mm-hmm. um, probably for General Motors at the time. And how long did it take you? Like, when you, I'm, I'm interested because, like, when you got up there, you, you weren't sure. There had to be part of you that was going, I might have not be able to figure this out, yeah. you know. Well, so. fortunately at the time, somebody had written the logic, so all I had to do was uh, type it in. That helps. Yeah. And then debug it. So uh, that was, that was a, you know, a good start. That's like a, a, a perfect way to, to learn that stuff too is like – because now you got to see is what lights up and what doesn't, you mm-hmm. know, and, and then see what what happens in the real world. Yeah. You know, and that, that was kind of how it was done then, you know. You, you were – you know, you kind of was trial by fire, but you would – somebody else would write it and you would start it up and make it work. And mm-hmm. then, so how long was it until you were writing your own code then? I, I officially moved into engineering the year my daughter was born, 1991. Oh, okay. And after that, then I, you know, pretty much stayed – you know, in engineering on the board, doing programming and design. And and back then it was, you know, you would do the hardware design, you would do the software design, you do the startup and the install. Mm-hmm. And so that that was good too back then because you got to be like that whole project was yours. Yeah, from you the beginning to end. And, yeah. and if something, you know, there was no, you get it handed to you and everything's all fucked up and you don't know why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's your job is to figure out why it's fucked up. Um but, uh, I, you know, it's funny because you said, oh, then, then the AutoCon thing came around. And that was like, I mean, only a couple of years into your career, right? Yeah, 1986 and, is and, when I went, landed there. June 20th, 1986. That is so funny because I, I knew that because I, I, you know, I, when I talked to you. But for some reason, AutoCon, you know, for me, it was over so quickly. You know, I was there about a year. Uh, I didn't realize that you were there for decades. Like yeah. that was your most of your career. Yeah, I w- if if it was still there, I'd probably still be there. Yeah, well, you because I mean, this must have been really interesting for you, or, or to 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 be bouncing around. You know, I mean, not that you've bounced around a, a, a lot, but you've kind of you know you've been in a couple different places since then. And I mean, for you, you you hadn't moved at all right. in twenty years. You know, so I mean, yeah, I had uh, I had I left there in nineteen ninety seven. And went to DCT as a project manager for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And right before DCT closed, AutoCon called me and said, hey, we're looking for an engineering manager. Would you be interested? And, I, you know, DCT was a big company and I actually wasn't being very challenged um, just because it was so big. There's so many people. It was like the work just wasn't enough to be interesting. Mm-hmm. So I said, sure. Yeah, it's, you know, I'll, I'll come back and do that. And I, and I was ready to do, you know, take on some management roles. And uh, a couple of months later, they closed. DCT closed. So, right decision. And I was like, then, wow, yeah. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know how, how lucky that was. Yeah. Well, I mean, so you've been – You'd been doing you'd been doing that managing you know I mean since you said ninety seven was when you you came yeah. back right uh, and uh, so t- I mean tell me about those twenty years then I mean like what, what well it's interesting because uh, you know you you work for people right and you 
decide what you do and you don't like about managers and you swear to yourself that you're going to be you're not going to be the guy you didn't like. So, I mean, I really try not to be that guy. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my management philosophy, I guess if you could call it that, is is I'm here to help my people do what they have to do. Right? Mm-hmm. They know what they have to do. I just have to help them do that. You know, and, you know, there's it's actually not rewarding work. It pays good, um, I think, because it's stressful and, you know, annoying. Mm-hmm. But uh, what, what I, I guess the best part about it is – to be able to find people and give them a chance, right? Because everybody needs that chance. Right. Um, I, somebody gave me a chance back in the late 80s to do something, and, and I did, and it changed the path of my you know life. So anytime I see someone and, and see that little glimmer of talent, I'm like, yeah, you need, you need this break. This is, this is what you need to, mm-hmm. to happen. So every, every chance I get, I try and do that for somebody. Well, I got to say, the, the – I did notice that at AutoCon and, and also at other places. And I have a story about you that I'm going to tell in a second here at, from the uh, the okay. last place I worked at. It's a good story. but it, it, And to me, the reason I'm going to tell is because it sums up like you were just talking about your management style. I noticed that AutoCon with my fellow coworkers, it was like I could tell there's a lot of shit raining down. And Jim would always be deflecting that shit from, from hitting us you know, as because we have a job to do and, and, right. and the shit would distract from that. So, But the story – uh, it took place at a comp- company that we were at a couple of years ago, and it was the one that uh, that uh, I, the last one that we worked at together. But I remember, uh, I don't even remember the, I can't remember the project was in Lansing. I can't remember the company that was for now, but it had, there had been some issue with it, and it was just continuing continuing to to be an issue. And uh, I remember I walked in, and I wasn't part of this meeting, but I walked in, and, and all the cubicles and everybody was standing around, and you got your arms crossed, and. Everybody else is just flipping out about something because this project has been going on so long and it's just, you know, every, it's just how the business is. Like sometimes things, you get them set up and then there's just issue after issue and the debug is taking a long time and blah, 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 blah. But I remember all these problems were getting listed and you were just standing there with your arms, arms crossed. And then, uh, when everything was, was done, you, you know, very calm voice, you were like, oh, it doesn't sound like anything that's, insurmountable (laughs) that was that was it and it was like yeah that that sums up jim pretty pretty good for me is is that right there just you know all the shit coming in and you're just kind of like well we can handle it you know so (laughs) so there you go it was van rob by the way that was van rob yeah that's right yeah Mm -hmm. and i i spent a week at van rob when i was at r&e that's right because i remember i went up there and it was it was this weird deja vu thing because i never (laughs) thought i'd be there again but here i am with the people that i was with the year before that you know uh weird but um uh, so let's talk about drumming though, because, uh, throughout your entire career, you're getting paid to do this, uh, you know, this particular type of work that you'd taken to as a kid. Um, but you were still drumming, weren't you? Yes. You still had. So tell me about you, what you were working on that after that, let's go all the way back to when that band you're, you're in at the, in high school in with high the school? seniors. Yeah. So after that, like how long did that last? And then after that broke up, what'd you do? A couple years of high school. And then I'm trying to remember. It all sort of you know runs together. It was it was a long time ago now. I want to say that's when I got with a band. After that was with a band called Teacher, and it was Teacher, a, Teacher, yeah. And it was a couple of Ford guys, um, two other guys, and myself. And I don't even not even sure how I met these guys. Actually, I think it was through Dave Gerard, maybe. 
Um, cause my, my wife was also in the music business. Oh, really? She was, she was the wedding band singer who made actually okay money. And I was the bar guy that, you know, didn't make much money at all. <laughs> but on weekends, we would go our separate ways and, you know, but it was fun. But yeah, so we had, you know, she had, she was in a band with this guy and he had heard that they were looking, this other group was looking for a drummer because he worked at Mass Amino's Music. Oh, okay. If you remember that place. I don't, is, that's not the one that was in, Al, or not Allen Park, uh, Frazier, was yeah, it? Yeah, it was right on Masonic. Oh, that was that. Okay. Yeah. I guess I do know about um, it then, yeah. Anyway, so he he hooked me up with these guys and that went for a couple of years and we just played little bars around town and stuff. Uh, it, it was a lot of fun. Um, and then I don't know what happened with after that. I'm trying to remember. Do you want to, you can hop on a mic, Paula, if you want. Like you're, <laughs> you're getting included in the conversation quite a bit here. So I'm, try, I'm just <laughs> trying to think of what happened with that band. Maybe parenthood happened because I did take a, a brief break in, uh, the music. I thought parenthood wow. was the next band for a second. Yeah, like, no, no, par- parenthood, <laughs> literal parenthood. Yeah. yeah. It's more demanding than a band. Yeah. <laughs> but we, you know, I, I think we, we had a, we built a house and we had a child and, and I just kind of went to the back burner for a couple of years actually. And then, you know, funny how the work and that comes together. There was a guy I was working with at General Motors on a project and he was in a band. Mm-hmm. He was a keyboard player and a singer. He was very good actually. So, um, Paula and I went up to see him at Mother's, I think, in Royal Oak, actually, mm-hmm. and uh, to see his band play, you know, because I've been working with him. And he called me up on stage, said, come on, play a set. And I hadn't played in several years, so I was a little nervous. Mm-hmm. But I, it's like riding a bike, right? You sit back down. And it's like, oh, yeah, you I got, got it. this. Yep. And I think on the way home, I, she looked at me and said, you're going to buy more drums, aren't you? I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I think I am. And is that the set that you still have now? Yes. That's, uh, so my, that was it. You, you never stopped again after that. I never that. stopped after that. And my, uh, my Aunt Gloria, the one with Ray Sasko, um, they had a drum shop called Sasko's Drum Shop in Warren for – that was probably 20 years or more. And uh, when I decided to get back into it, we went and talked to Aunt Gloria. I said, all right, I'm ready to buy some drums. So she hooked me up good with the pearl masters and I've, I've had those ever since i love those drums mm-hmm. and I, I just remembered you named your dogs after drum yes. brands as well i've had a, a zildjian a sabian a gretchen a pearl right right <laughs> so you're, you're almost out of them though like like i mean what, what's the next one going to be i think we might switch to guitars oh there you go or, or possibly we talked about jambe that's a that's a possible dog name. That's a cool one. But then we're going to switch to guitars. Well, the first two are easy. You just get Les and Paul. Yeah, the first two <laughs> first two guitar dogs. So there you go. But uh, and then you know I've, I when we moved, my uh, neighbor from the old neighborhood said, "Well, you know, I'm going to buy a guitar and we're going to jam." So then you know I had this succession of people that would come to the house and practice and play. And it was always somebody that knew somebody. And then that person would leave, but the other person would stay and they would bring someone. And it's been, you know, there's probably been 20 people that have, you know, kept that up. We never really did anything other than the basement much, mm-hmm. but it was always, you know, and that was the thing that I was a part of then. Wasn't yes. it? Yeah. Cause I came over and sang. I remember the first, it was probably the first week that uh, I worked at AutoCon, you came over and, and I'd been doing controls maybe nine months at that point. I had no idea. I was fucking terrified every day. I was, you know, and uh, you came over and you started talking about music and I'm like, I'm like, this guy actually seems pretty cool. Like he's actually, you know, cause at that point, every, all, all the managers terrified me at the, I'd come from Kuka, which is a bigger company. And, uh, and, but yeah, so you invited me over and, uh, and I, I sang with you and we, we ended up doing one show 
mm-hmm. at uh, what was it? It was in Armada. 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 Yeah, yeah, Armada Fairgrounds, and that was the last time I saw yeah. you. Was uh, that set list that we did? And uh, we had we I believe we called ourselves Prairie Rehab. Yes, you had a sign that I you had hung. a sign. We we actually part of the, we do the dog sport thing, and we go to St. Louis, or we try to go to St. Louis every year, and do a, a national event. And one year we got a flat tire mm. on the trailer on a camper on the way down. So uh, I don't remember what part had fallen off during this process, but a friend of ours happened to pull up behind us and say, can I help you? And I go, yeah, I lost this somewhere between here and, you know, a thousand yards from here. Well, she didn't find the part I was looking for, but she came back with a sign that said Prairie Rehab. <laughs> and I thought, well, that's kind of – I don't know what that means, but it would be a really cool name for a band. Yeah, so yeah. So <laughs> – I kept the sign. And and where did she get the sign? Like what It was, was laying the... on the road. It was laying on the side of uh, I-40 huh. in St. Louis. And you still have that sign? I still have that sign. Yeah. There you go. So are you still doing basement stuff then, or how's how's that been going? Um, yeah, actually. We did uh, – we, we've played in Corona two years in a row. And then where did we just play this year? Goodles Park in, in St. Clair. Oh, cool. For the Farm Museum fundraiser. Nice. And it's um I'm trying to think of who my brother's probably the only one that's been he's been probably the most constant in So Raf's not there anymore? Raf's not there anymore. Jim's moved out of state now. Oh really? Um Matt Lerner. I don't know if you've met him. I think that. he was there one he's the is he a bass player? He's we well, he was a bass player, yeah. Yeah, I think he, he was playing bass player. when I met him. Yeah. Okay. So Matt and Andy and I are pretty much the core group. We had a really good singer for a while. We played uh uh, a pig roast in um, Emily City hmm. two years ago. And this guy was a phenomenal singer, but his wife worked for my brother and she quit and he coincidentally quit the band at the same time. Oh, so I'm see. not exactly yeah. sure what happened there, but he was, he Politics. was pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's still fun. You know, I I'm, I'm, couldn't be glad or happier that I started doing that because it's something you can do forever. Right, right. You know, and you got to have something to do after work. That's mm-hmm. that's what I've learned in the past couple of years. Like, is is you have to freaking have your pursuits outside of work. And, and it's interesting. There, it seems like amongst controls engineers, a lot of them are musicians. Mm-hmm. And I think it's I think it's the creative thing, right? We're creative people. That's our the outlet we need. Right. Well, that's it's funny you say that because when I the guy who got me into controls, uh, Don Woolley, who's been on this podcast several times. Um, uh, he, when I started doing it, he was like, no, this is a creative thing, man. Like, that's why I think that you'd be good at it is, is you are creative and you have to be creative in order to be good at this. So mm-hmm. that's very true. So there that's, you go. You know, I think that's, uh, uh, that's why, that's another reason like why I hate standards and I love new guys is because they have new ideas. You mm-hmm. know, you get somebody that's been doing the same thing for 40 years and you know they're kind of burned out and there's no freshness there mm-hmm. but you get someone that doesn't have 40 years of you know stuff pounded into their head and you're going to get new ideas out of people i think that's awesome tell me about the place that you're working at now do you have any guys like that there yeah i got actually these these are some great people um they they've They've made me realize that it's probably best that I'm a manager now and not being an engineer anymore because I don't think I could, you know, even approach the talent these guys have. Mm. Um, Programming-wise, they're phenomenal. Some of the reverse engineering I've seen guys do, you know, digging into other people's C code written in German, you know, and commented in foreign languages, and these guys are able to to forensically figure out what they're doing 
and change it to do what it needs to. It's really amazing. And are they all soft self taught then or? Yeah, I think this whole industry is pretty much self taught. It's, mm-hmm. I mean, there's only one way to learn this and that's to fall into it and not and do know, it. get killed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get thrown in the pool and yeah, exactly. see if you can swim. Sink or swim. Um, so, but tell me about the, the company, like, like what kind of stuff do you guys work on? And I know we were talking about before we were on the air. Yeah, but. well, it, that's the other thing I really like about this place is it's a great variety. I mean, you know, if you live and work in Detroit, usually your life revolves around automotive somehow. Um, that's about 25% of what we do is automotive. Um, we do quite a bit of aerospace. We do some climate control. Um, we do some food processing. We do some defense work. Um, we do weird things like with horseshoes and I mean, yeah, it's like it's literal horseshoes, literally bending horseshoes with machinery instead of huh. you know, hammers. So that's pretty interesting. That's stuff. about everything. Then that's pretty much everything, yeah, that, you know, and, you know except any, for like roller coasters right? and any place. Actually, they did some Disney stuff. Not, oh, there you not go. while I was there, but they did. Uh, there, there is a Disney job on file. That is, that's fucking cool. So, yeah, and it is. And it's, it's, I think part of it's the, the affiliation with the motion control part of the, the distributorship gets us into some interesting places. Cause, you know, again, if you're in Detroit, you think automotive, but there's really automation everywhere. You know, I mean, every industry is automated. Uh, we're we're working currently on a machine that makes tape, tape like like scotch tape, like uh, masking tape. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. It's a fun. It, it's a fascinating process. Actually, they do it. You know, eighteen thousand yards of you know six foot wide rolls of paper that they put adhesives and chemicals on and make masking tape out of it and you guys take the from the beginning to end like the machine that you're making is yeah comes in paper and it leaves tape yeah <laughs> it's it's been very interesting so that's that's you know and again i said before i love airplanes so all the aerospace stuff is really cool mm-hmm. and we worked on some rocket programs and and that's the kind of stuff that a lot of times you're not allowed to talk about it at right. all right because i remember the at kuka there was their, their aerospace section of the floor was walled off and tarped so you yeah. couldn't even look at what they were doing it's a secret yeah but yeah it's interesting stuff uh interestingly the 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 vehicle technology in aerospace is pretty phenomenal the manufacturing technology in aerospace is pretty old school mm-hmm. they're probably 20 years 25 years behind automotive in their manufacturing capabilities in terms of like the f- putting the stuff together physically yeah, they, like, they still use people they use a lot of humans on platforms riveting stuff together i imagine that's because you know when you're thirty thousand feet in the air you know actually <laughs> i think it's because they only make you know a couple a year you know you oh, go into an auto too. plant yeah. they make a car every you know 30 seconds mm-hmm. you know they make a plane every 30 days yeah that's so true. they just don't have the same production demands mm-hmm. but that's i mean you must be jumping on those projects every time something comes in. You're like, I'll take it, right? The the aerospace yeah, stuff. I, yeah, I mean, I never turn anything down. Yeah. <laughs> um, lately, I feel more like a sales guy than anything else. Um, I have, you know, the I have a hardware crew and a software crew, and each crew has its own manager, mm-hmm. and so I get to do a lot of quoting and estimating and sales type stuff. Nice. So it's different. It's, it's taking a little getting used to, but I'm, I'm getting used to it. Yeah. Well, I mean, plus you've been, you've been doing it for so long anyway now that, you know, it must be nice to sort of have all the, 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 the work pretty much like when it comes to actually building the stuff underneath you and then you're just kind of overseeing and being yeah. like, Hey, you know? Yeah. And it, and it is, they're good guys. So, you know, I trust them completely to do the right thing and they always do. So, 
That's much better than not trusting the guys and you know. Yeah, yeah, you got you got to trust your people. You yeah, know? and and it's true what they you know the the cliche about you know surround yourself with the smartest people you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, you know being the dumbest guy in the room is great. Yeah, you don't have yeah. to worry about anything. I know it's taken care of. And you've been there. You said about a year and a cu- couple months now, right? Yeah. So. And and you said you, you you're planning on sticking around. Yeah, it is a great place to work. I've you know worked very few weekends, and you know they've they 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 it's the kind of place they okay the weather's getting bad. Why don't you guys all just pack up and go home? Nice, nice. Know? That is the one thing about the controls industry is like wh- there are so many days. It's like why am I here? What exactly is am I doing right now that could not have waited till tomorrow or till Monday or whatever? You know? Yeah, that's oh, it's interesting. You know, I think people lose touch with the fact that it's just a car part yeah yeah there's no lives at stake here it's a car part you know you can yell and scream and have the veins bulge out your head (laughs) and spit when you talk but at the end of the day it's a car part relax yeah and the and that was another thing i learned very quickly is uh is the there's nothing worth freaking out about Mm -hmm. in this in this industry nothing i don't care what do you, what do you think think uh, it might be? My theory is people that lack talent make up for it with intensity. Yeah, yeah. So if if they don't know what else to do, they can't help. They can't fix anything. They're gonna yell and scream because at least it makes them feel like they're doing something. Yeah, yeah. And it, it, or it makes it makes them look like they're like they care. Yeah, right? exactly. I found that's a, that's another thing is the people that get mad are the ones that don't know what they're doing. Mm-hmm. The less they know, the more likely they are to get angry. So we're gonna. Do something. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Everybody focus on how mad I am instead of the fact this isn't getting done. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's like, you know, and I appreciate that you need to have certain business processes in place and schedules and stuff. But I think a lot of that is designed to help people that don't know pretend they know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know maybe a, a meeting once in a while is okay, but, you know, you get on the daily meeting thing, that's just a waste of time. What are you doing? Yeah, yeah. This could have been an resources. email. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, the the one, It was funny because uh, when I was still at R&E, this was after you'd left, but I had a, I was at a, uh, what the hell was that, QMC in Livonia, and I was on second shift there, and I did that for almost six months. And that was actually the crew that I was with, the maintenance crew, was some of the, the best guys that I'd, I'd worked with. And, uh, but the, the guy who ran it, the manager was like a notorious asshole. Like for, but the thing is, is it was, he was only there for maybe two months that I was, that I, I was working there. And then, uh, he had too many complaints against him and rather than get canned, he, he decided to resign. Um, but, uh, that's what happens is like, you know, it's politics. So if you, if you're that type of guy, you're going to, it's not just, you know, who, you know, it's how you're known. Mm -hmm. So, so that was that, and that was when I learned not to be intimidated by those people because I was like, I'm, this guy's just like, I remember one time, I don't even remember what the issue was, but I remember he was getting on me about, what the hell was it? It was like valves on a, I don't even, I can't even remember what it was. That's how unimportant it was. I don't even remember what the specific issue was. Um, but I, I, it was really simple software and I, and I, it was like either on off type stuff, like this particular switch. And I'm like, look, man, like this is, it's just a machine. Like it's, it either works or it doesn't. And, uh, and he, and it was at that moment cause I realized that like, he didn't really know what I was talking about. And so I was like, well, I'm not going to, why, why am I nervous around this guy? He doesn't know what the hell's going on. So I'll just tell him what I need to tell him. And, and I, that's what I did. And then the, the issue was over, you know? And, uh, so, and that was, 
when was that? That was in summer of 2016. That was actually uh, we. Uh, I took two days off that June. I worked every single day in June 2016 except for two days. I had I called in twice. Uh, I don't remember exactly why. I do know that part of the reason was I couldn't remember what day it was. I had because <laughs> that you just lose, especially being on second shift. You're there from you know four in the afternoon till three in the morning, and uh, if you're there every day, I was like, and I believe it was a Wednesday and a Thursday, and. Uh, you just happened to call me up uh, that day that I had off, and you're like, "Hey, we're we're jamming tonight. Do you want to join?" I was like, "Yeah, I'll come over." And so that was <laughs> that was funny that that worked out that way. Um, but uh, but yeah, so again, both things tied in. Um, so I got a couple of uh, we got about ten fifteen minutes left here. So I got a couple of um, like uh, sort of rapid fire questions for you. Uh-oh. You don't have to answer them quickly, but just okay. they're they're kind of short questions. And uh, just answer them. If you can't think of anything specific, just, you know, you can just say, I can't really think of anything. But uh, what was the, in your controls career, what is the hardest project you've ever worked on? The hardest project was an oil fill machine at Forage Sterling. I actually have a scar from it right here. Oh, no kidding. Um, it, it was a, go figure, a mechanical disaster. Uh-huh. Um, and we actually rebuilt it. While it was running production, uh, it, w- it was a positive displacement oil fill system. And fortunately, there was a backup machine, um, but none of the components were sized correctly. So it would only run for a little while, and then it would fault out. And then the other side would have to run until it would fault out. So I was there for months on it. In fact, it, the smell of the additive in the oil pretty much ruined the truck I was driving at the time. Really? Um, but, yeah, so we pretty much rebuilt that on the fly while it was running production. And how'd you get the scar? I got to ask. Oh, I was working on something in a very confined space and I hit my head, which caused me to bang my head the other direction. So I kind of did the pinball thing inside of a bunch of enclosures and it was actually the, the hinge pin on a J boxes. Oh my God. And I I went to the, the clinic in the plant and they took the rag off and said, go to the hospital. So I went to the hospital and they, I don't know if they stitched it or, or uh, butterflied it or something, but it was fine out because they, they go, you go to a hospital. Yeah, they just took one back. look at it. I'm not yeah. doing that. Yeah, yeah. And that was Ford Sterling, you said, right? Ford Sterling. And we had, I remember you still, we were working with them right up until mm-hmm. AutoCon was gone. Yeah, yeah, yeah that was, uh, there was a time at Ford Sterling when every picture on their little board in the lobby had some piece of autocon equipment in it. Really? Yeah. So I was I definitely spent more time at Forge Darling than any single other plant anywhere. Okay. Uh what was the easiest job you ever worked on? That would have been American Axle. It was a Cymax old controller. It was a Loctite station. And I I mean it was a pretty simple operation, right? The pallet stops the head runs in, it sprays Loctite as it's backing out, and just returns and lets it go. Mm-hmm. Um, we built the station, installed it. I wrote the program offline, uh, put it in online because it was um, uh, old Cymax controller. You didn't have files and stuff you could do that with, or at least we didn't. Uh, I ran it in manual, put it in auto, and it ran. I never, I mean, it just worked. That was the only time in my career that anything just worked off the board. I didn't even have to fix it. You're like, oh, this will, this will, it'll be like this forever now. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I've reached that point. <laughs> um, what do you think, like, what do you see happening in the future of controls? Like, what's the next big revolution when it comes to technology, you know, uh, engineering, electrical engineering and all that? 
Well, I think everything's going to become more common platform. I, I'm seeing like smaller uh, open architecture type stuff, which they, they made a big push for that in the 90s. Didn't really take off. I think they the marketing people overshot it and the pricing wasn't where it needed to be. Mm-hmm. But I'm seeing that come coming back to the open architecture and the IEC 11631. I think that's going to be from a control standpoint. You're going to see more of you know Raspberry Pi kind of things mm. out there. Uh, manufacturing wise, I think everything's going to become 3D printed. Yeah, there yeah. is there is so many phenomenal things I see him doing with 3D printing now with 3D printing metals and things like that. I, I think what CNCs did to the transfer line, I think 3D printing is going to do to CNCs. Do you think that it'll get to the point like because I this is what I've always thought is it's going to eventually get to a point where it's just one dude from the beginning to the end of a project, one guy with an iPad, and then that's that's it. And then he he, he walks around with the iPad and maintains the whole thing. Yeah, you think I, can, that's, I can see that getting there. Mm-hmm. And how long do you think we're we're away from? Uh, thirty years, long, probably thirty years. I think thirty years. It'll be it'll be there. I think they're going to be working on that, but mm-hmm. I think that's where it'll be. And like I said, I mean, you think about the 3D printing and there's no waste, right? Yeah. You are making something and you are putting just the material you need into it. Everything else you do, you're casting and then you're machining off material or you're taking an extrusion and you're machining off and drilling holes. And Mm -hmm. I mean, most of it ends up some sort of scrap, you know, that that's just terribly wasteful. Right. Right. It's amazing. And I've said this so many times too. It's amazing. Uh, like, in dye plants, like you said, like the thing that comes, it comes down, cuts the blank, and a good, you know, a couple pounds of metal just fall down yeah, the chute. Exactly, and then it's like, where do those go? I mean, they they get recycled. I would imagine they get, you know, they get melted down and turned into something else. But uh, hell, the whole industry. It's amazing that the car even gets made sometimes because <laughs> of how not necessarily. I always say it's thrown together. It's it can't be thrown together when it comes to actually making the thing. There's regulations and things that you 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 have to pass in order for it to be sold. But in terms of the process of how it's, of how it's this, you know, what, the, what decisions are made, uh, as to, okay, we're going to go with this particular hole and here's the measurement for it. And, oh, wait, no, we fucked it up. We have to go over here now, but this was already started getting built. So they got to go back and shit, you know, it's absolutely, uh, it's, 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 it's fascinating. Yeah. Every time you get in your car and it starts, you got to think, wow. And I, I, people that haven't worked in the auto industry don't get that necessarily. Mm-hmm. I think they take that for granted, but it's kind of like, you know, the, you don't want to know how the sausage is made sort right. of anyway, you know, that's how I've kind of always looked at it. But I got to say, it's funny because every, t- every car that my family owns now, I, I worked on a line at some point. Like, <laughs> like I have a cruise. I did the, I, just before I started working with you at legacy, I was in Lordstown uh, for a, a week. Uh, where they make the cruises. I believe that just shut down, actually. They shut down the Lordstown plant this year. Yeah. Um, and then uh, my dad has an F-150, and I worked on the F- the very first lines of KUKA that I was on were the aluminum F-150s, which is that truck. And then when I was in uh, Bowling Green at R&E, they made the Jeep Grand Cherokees. That was the main line that I worked on, and uh, my mom drives one of those. So it's kind of funny how that worked out. That was not planned. That just happened. Um, and I actually had the cruise before I even met you. I bought that right before I... Uh, I started at AutoCon, um, but uh, okay, yeah. So now we're gonna do some uh, some music questions. Um, just tell us about. I'll, I'll ask it this way. Well, who's your favorite band? My favorite band of all time is probably Rush. Rush. Pick. Obviously, it's Neil Peart. Right. He was, mm-hmm. a, he was a phenomenal drummer. 
Probably still is, although I guess he retired. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, have you you've seen them live, haven't you? Yes, you have. Where and how many times? Pine Knob, probably a half dozen times over the years. Mm-hmm. And it's, when was the last time you saw him? Probably five years ago, six years ago. So not that long ago. That yeah, and they're still around, aren't they? they I know Neil Pert's not doing it anymore. I, but. Yeah, I'm sure they're doing something. I, my daughter actually offered to take me to a concert a couple of years ago, and I declined because I've kind of reached that point where I don't like to do crowds if I can avoid. Oh it. yeah, yeah. Well, when was the last concert you went to then? We last two summers ago, three summers ago, we went and saw. Uh, it was Ario Speedwagon Chicago, maybe. It was one of those, you know, a couple of classic bands. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it was it was an enjoyable show, and it was the one where at the end of the show, the two bands would get together and play each other's songs. Oh, like nice that. to do a hootenanny sort yeah, of deal. It's yeah. kind of fun. Um, who are your influences when it comes to drumming? Um, well, it, early on, it was Max Roach, Buddy Rich. Uh, the jazz guys, the jazz guys yeah. that was sort of the background. I, there was music minus one albums that were tracks without drummers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you would play along with those, which I guess they probably still have that now. Yeah, YouTube. Know. They just YouTube that yeah. shit. Yep. Um, and then later on in life, uh, it was Neil Peart. I was a big fan. John Bonham. Um, both those guys had, like, very unique styles. Um, I, Eddie Van Halen or Alex Van Halen. I thought was interesting because you could hear him get better from yeah. album to album to album. He got better and better and better. Um, a little later on in life, uh, uh, Danny Carey, the guy from Tool, is technically probably the the best guy I could think of. The things he does are just phenomenal. He has a level of independence that you know between his limbs that I've never witnessed before. Yeah. Well, I would you? I gotta ask. What do you think of their latest? After what is it like a thirteen year wait? Yeah, it was thirteen it, it years. Sounded just like them. Yeah, I, I was kind of. I, I don't know what I expected, but it was sounded like more of the same, mm-hmm. which it, I guess is good if you're a Tool fan. You know, I, I liked it, but it didn't. I think the after them being away for so long, I the hype was just too high for me, and I was expecting to be blown away. And like you said, I listened. To it, I was like, well, this is this is them. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, but, exactly. It was like the same stuff. You know, mm-hmm. and again, yeah, I'm not sure what you expect. Maybe it was the hype, mm-hmm. but I mean, every once in a while, I mean, bands they just keep doing cooler stuff. You know, yeah, yeah. Well, the evolution, you know, I mean, some of my favorite, like Clutch. Clutch is one of my favorite bands. They they've kind of been on the same trajectory for a while now. The sort of blues hard rock thing, but um, for a while there, like in the '90s, like every album of theirs, they were they would you'd hear something different in it, in it. They'd get more complicated, or they'd try a different you know format, or they'd uh. They just, you know, do they just try something different? Yeah, shake it up a little uh, yeah. bit, yeah, uh, yeah. You kind of like that, even, even like you know, Kid Rock. Yeah, he started yeah, that's out, true. you know, one genre, and he's pretty much a completely different genre by now. You have you ever seen his very first album, which I believe is called "It's uh, Grits"? It's something grits for breakfast, some crazy sounding flavor of grits for breakfast. No, I don't it's he's he looks like Vanilla Ice. Uh, he had this his head shaved into the, his hair shaved into this weird like flat top thing. Really, and uh, and then you look at and that was only a couple of years before Devil Without a Cause, which is what put him on the map. And now he's doing his like country type yeah, thing, and he's been on that for a while now. He's been on that for probably about ten years. So yeah, there's reinventing yourself is mm-hmm. definitely uh, part of the game. Well, and it's funny because uh, you know just the the band that I've been playing with the last couple of years 
we did a lot of rock and we threw in a little country and the people seemed to really like the country. Well, so so next time country, we did a little huh? bit more country stuff and people seemed to like that. So, you know, I guess you got to follow the, the, follow the, what the crowd like. Country is huge right now. It's the, that is, it's that in like hip hop slash pop in terms of like popular music. Like right. that's, those are the two genres that are dominating and it sucks because rock is still out there, but rock is sort of like jazz now. It's not, it's not yeah. pop music, you know? Yeah, well, And I think a, there doesn't seem to be as many, you know, guys like us, right? Musicians, mm-hmm. basement, garage guys. There just doesn't seem to be as many of them. I think, you know, when I was a kid, it's like everybody played guitar or drums or bass or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it seemed like, at least to me, it seemed like that. I think about when uh, my daughter was in school, she had one friend that was in a band. You know, it was like, I don't know, everybody was in a band. And that wasn't that long ago. She's- no. 1991 she's you know, born so so and so where i mean if you're not if you don't have these kids playing in basements and garages you know where is where's the music come from right it's, it's the, i gotta say though man there is this band from florida that i they've been around for a while their first album was 2013 i'm interviewing the singer in december i, I scheduled him a couple weeks ago um they're called noise heads one word fucking amazing they sound like it sounds like Allison Chains meets the Melvins and then with like a sort of almost puddle of mud type type right. vocal, like very high. But this dude can scream like you would not believe. So check them out. They got two albums, uh, an EP, like a single, a whole bunch of stuff to, to check yeah, out on streaming. So that's cool. Oh, Greta Greta Von Fleet. Greta Van Fleet is they're, the is they're the, pretty cool out of yeah, Frankenmuth, Michigan. I know, yeah. They've uh, they're sort of the big one that's come out in the past couple of years. And the main thing is just because like how uncannily they sound like led zeppelin well, the it's, first time i heard them I, i'm listening to the radio I go wow i've never before played led zeppelin song yeah this is yeah awesome. and that, it was probably highway to it yeah. wasn't it and that's a cool riff and that, i remember i heard that on the riff too and i was like the, at the time i knew who they were i hadn't heard them yet but um i saw on my my radio greta van Fleet. i'm like oh this is what they i was like this is pretty fucking good this is i like this so so they're on like i said there's still stuff out there you just kind of got to look for it now. Whereas right. before it was on the top 10, it, you know, if, if this was in the 1990s, the iTunes top 10 would be, there'd be some rock musicians on there. Whereas now it's, it's just all rap and hip hop and, and pop singers and things like that. Although it's funny though, because occasionally like in 2014, I remember I came home one day and there on the iTunes is like, you know, Ariana Grande and then Slipknot had just released an album. So Slipknot had like three or four songs nice. on the top one. And I just thought that was hilarious seeing their name next to Ariana Grande, you know, <laughs> but, um, but anyway, we're, uh, we're at the top of the hour here, man. So this, this flew by as it tends awesome. to do. Um, and thanks so much for coming in and thanks for, uh, you know, thanks for, um, sort of being the guy who, uh, was I finally started to understand controls when I was working for you. And so that was, I I will never forget that. And, and, and so thank you for doing that. And then also thank you for hooking up me up with a couple different jobs uh, over the years as well. Cause you're, you're the reason I've, I've been able to eat and, uh, (laughs) and do this podcast for, uh, for, for a while. So I said, then, you know, that that's what it's about, right? You just try and like help people out. Yeah. Well, very much appreciated. Um, and uh, so, yeah, I will be back next week. I'm going to be interviewing uh, Conrad Lee, who is a, he bills himself as a lounge singer extraordinaire. I saw him at the Logger House um, last June, and he's quite the character. So we're looking forward to talking to him. Um, yeah, so everybody have a great week. Uh, this has been American Winer at Podcast Detroit.